Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon Podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'm your host for this podcast. A little background about our organization. We're located in Oakville, Ontario, but provide our services to the greater Toronto area. We offer facilitated grief peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families following a death-related loss in their family. Our groups are open-ended and ongoing, uh, which offer each family member an opportunity with which to participate in their own unique way. But before we begin, I would like to share with you a land acknowledgement, especially given our measures in truth reconciliation and the uncovering of Indigenous children across the country in residential schools. Personally, I live on and I'm a settler on the land of Toronto, which is the traditional territories of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, and Haudenosaunee and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples. I also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit, and the Williams Treaty, signed with the multiple Mississaugas and the Chippewa bands. And we launched these podcasts in an effort to create a greater awareness, not only to children's grief support, but especially the diversity within children's grief. And joining us today, and we've been chatting, I mean, we spent half the podcast time chatting already. But uh, my special guest today, an individual that I have the pleasure and privilege of meeting when I was invited to be part of the Stories for Caregivers, where he is the host of Cypher. Asante Houghton has emerged as a leader in mental health, a veteran speaker on the circuit. Asante has presented across the globe, including a pair of TEDx talks telling stories detailing the impact of family trauma on mental health. Through his work, Asante was also named as CAMH 150 Difference Maker, being awarded the distinction of being one of the top 150 difference makers in Canadian mental health. Recently, Asante's poetry and writing was featured in Africanthology, a collection of poems, stories, essays from Black Canadian artists and thinkers. And since 2019, as the host of Cypher, a web show that takes caregiving stories and turns them into songs, Asante has been privileged uh, sorry, my apologies. Asante has been interviewing, and maybe he was feeling privileged, loved ones, supporting loved ones to spotlight the healing power of connection. And anytime we are spotlighting and being involved in the healing power of connection, I do believe it is a privilege. Finally, in his nine to five, Asante is a manager, a designer, and a facilitator for peer support training programs in Stella's Place and for the City of Toronto's Community Health Project, which supports youth exposed to community violence and their wellness while building capacity to facilitate peer-to-peer workshops on mental health and trauma. He's also a recently new father, and he has two children, and he's married. So welcome, my man. Hey, man. It's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. I appreciate your time, because we were just talking in the backstory of how busy things can get, especially when you have your, you know, your home base work and, and your, your you know your salary job and then your consulting and teaching and training and what have you but uh your time with us today is quite invaluable now we had a bit of a backstory asante we were talking yeah. about poverty and what have you and and trauma and loss and hustling and and can we continue that conversation i know we just dropped it and, and yeah, ran sure. so please carry forth on what we were we were discussing yeah you know so i was just saying that me growing up poor and i grew up like really poor it was really traumatizing for me. And, you know, it's, the, it's one of the things that continues to drive me today because I don't have a financial safety net in my family. So if it, if it all falls down, like, then it falls down and there's nothing to help me, you know, get back up. And also, you know, just growing up in such a way where, you know, as I arrived in my teen years, food became really precarious and I didn't know where I was going to get my meals from. You know, that's really scary when, you know, you're hungry and you're like, when is the next one going to arrive? And you just don't know. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, and so, you know, for me, that was really hard. And so now I work really hard to try to avoid that. But, you know, I the sacrifices that come with that are often my relationships with friends and family. And especially over the past couple of years in the pandemic, where I've been probably going harder than I ever have, I'm sure that you know, there's been an impact on my relationships, 100% sure, you know, definitely an impact on my marriage, definitely impact with many of my friendships, definitely. And, you know, that sucks. Yet, you know, there's still this part of me that's like, well, you got to keep going because, you know, 
any day you can lose your job and poverty's right around the corner. So keep building skills, keep making connections, keep finding opportunities, keep, 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 just keep doing stuff, which may not be the healthiest way to live. Quite honestly, you know, the, 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 the trauma can really propel you in that direction. Then, you know, we're talking about poverty and, you know, you talk about loss and grief. And as I think about loss and grief through the lens of poverty, I think about all of the people who grew up poor, who didn't get to achieve their dreams or chase their dreams, not because anything other than not having the financial means to do so. And, you know, people often say, hey, why, why are all these kids in these poor neighborhoods? Why are they acting up? What's going on with these kids? And it's like, well, you know, when you hit grade seven, grade eight and above, you know, maybe it starts in grade six, you start to develop an awareness about where you fit in the world. And when you look around and notice that where you fit in the world is that you don't fit because of your financial situation, because the color of your skin, because of your gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, you start to lose hope. And then when people start to lose hope, they stop caring about the results because they don't think the results that they would like are achievable. And then you start self-destructing or you start making decisions that are very like, well, whatever happens, happens. We'll see where it goes, you know? And so for me, uh, you know, one of the things that I often say to young people when I work with them is that grief and loss is not just who died, you know? Or it's not just the relationship that ended, you know? It's, it's the life that you wanted and losing the possibility of that. And that's really huge. And I don't think that's stated enough. I, I think... We don't talk about that phenomenon, how that impacts people. You know, I'm talking about poor people, but that probably resonates with a lot of people in general. You know, especially now I'm 36, right? And, you know, you start to get up there and you're like, you start to realize that there are certain things that just won't be possible anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, you know, I grew up playing sports and there's a part of me that's like, well, you know, you recognize that, hey, you know, there's no way I can ever play professional sports at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but then I look back and I think maybe I actually had a shot if I had had more resources around me. You know what I mean? Those kinds of things are kind of sad, you know. Then, you know, I also grew up doing music, right? And that's another thing I let go because, you know, I let go of sports and I let go of music because at the time, you know, when I was really involved in that stuff, you know, nobody was coming to Canada to look for basketball players to sign to a scholarship in the States. Nobody yeah. was looking for rap artists to sign to a record label. You know what I'm saying? Like, I finished high school before Drake was famous. Kind of, You know what I mean? <laughs> and so it was like one of those things where I'm like, though I feel like I'm pretty good at basketball, I'm pretty good at music the odds of me achieving financial security in these domains, slim. So I got to university, I quit basketball. People are like, how come you didn't play, you know, on a university level? And I'm like, well, because that wasn't going to take me to the NBA, <laughs> you know, in my mind. So I might as well focus on my studies. And, you know, same thing with music. I'm like, I'm probably not going to make a lot of money doing this. Probably not more than I would make if I became a psychologist. You know what I mean? So I'm like, let me just focus on my studies instead. But then now I look, I look around and the, the climate and the environment is so different for these young people growing up. And they have all these resources that I never had access to. And maybe even this mindsets that I never had access to. Because again, this was before the internet really pr proliferated. And I think the internet is a powerful tool that gives people the sense that anything is possible. You know, I was, I was making the point to, you know, some of my friends the other day that growing up in the 90s was so different without the internet because the only thing you really knew was what happened in your own community or what you saw on the news or what your, you know, your, your friends or your cousins who lived in a different city or country would tell you. But outside of that, your world was literally just like your immediate environment. So you couldn't like reach out and say, yeah, that's possible for me because you had no, you literally had no connection with it, like ta tangibly no connection to the possibility that something like that could be possible for you. But now you have the internet, 
And anyone can harness and develop whatever they talent they have and just put it on the internet and be discovered. Or you don't even need to be discovered anymore. You just create the the environment for yourself. Sometimes I look around at these young people, I'm like, I wish I had what you had, you know? But maybe I'm making excuses. I don't know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, you know, so when I think about like loss through the lens of poverty, you know, these are the things that come to my mind. So insightful, uh, Asante. And if we can speak a little bit more about, you know, I, I love the framework in which you provided the context of poverty. The access to services or grief support for children, youth, and teens, when it comes to those experiencing poverty, I suspect is scarce, if not, you know, absent. I look at, for example, Lighthouse for Grieving Children. It's in a pretty affluent Southern Oakville environment, right? Mm -hmm. And although we've had in-person and and online and this grief support, you know, across the GTA, I suspect there's areas that that you would could attest to that there's a level of poverty where people are, teens and and, and children are not going to have access to grief support. And when we talk about internet, that's like assuming that, that it's people who have access to internet, but the many populations that I work with or I've spoken to don't have access to internet or the privacy to sit in a room and speak over the internet in terms of receiving support and resources. Can you highlight that a little bit in terms of what you've seen and what you've experienced, how poverty marginalized support when it comes to loss and grief and social services, especially for that demographic where you talk about when people are, you know, grade six, seven, eight, where they're finding themselves and becoming some, you know, something of themselves. You know, what's really interesting that comes to mind as you say what you just said is there appears to be this invisible threshold of these services only reach down so far. You know, they're, the people who are often in most need of these services are so marginalized and under-resourced that they don't have the capacity, not because of anything that they did, but because of their circumstances to really connect and reach these resources. And I say that because of the work that I do with the Community Healing Project, and our whole mandate is to end cycles of violence by addressing trauma, the, the, the trauma that people inherit from being witness or living in a community where violence is prevalent. And the big challenge that we have is we want to reach the most vulnerable people who are most likely to become involved in violence, but we have difficulty reaching those young people because they don't have enough access to resources to even see where we're advertising or to show up in the spaces that we go to to do outreach, right? So, absolutely, absolutely. So what's the impact, if I may ask you, on those those children and those youth and those teens? What do you see as the impact when they don't have access to whatever we're putting out there? You know, those are the kids who end up dead, in jail, living on the street, addicted to something, you know, so much so that it has a huge negative impact on their life. You know, the folks that we often stigmatize as like the dregs of society, it's, it's like... You know, with when when they're you know teenagers or adults, we're like, what's wrong with these people? Why can't they get it together? But no one ever talks about what happened before they were five years old, because you know I'm sure these were cute babies at one point and cute toddlers and cute kids, but something happened that led them down the circumstance and down the path that they're on, the path that makes us who are unknowing of their histories to say, why can't this person get it together? Yeah, and it's like, it's like a feedback loop, right? So poverty feeds the lack of resources. And then there's, you know, however you define loss, whether it's, you know, recreational, hope, education, or death-related loss, feeds the cycle of being marginalized and, you know, lifestyle. And that feed continues to feed back in terms of the traumatization. And then you have the the discrimination, the racism, the marginalization by by society. And it's almost, there's no way out. Exactly. You know, um, it's almost like there's no way out. And, you know, going back to what I was saying before, when people start to feel like that, what kind of decisions do they make? Because, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about before we started recording was, when I had reached a point of being so poor that I was contemplating robbing people of their valuables, 
And the thing that kept me from doing that, and I hate to say this, but it's true, was not my morality. It was the fact that I knew that I still had some hope to access resources that could take me out of the situation that I was in. You know, it's like I was already in university at that point. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I'm like, okay, all I got to do is complete this and it, it can get better for me. If you don't have access to something that looks like a future, then maybe you start robbing people or, you know, some other behavior that's, you know, not healthy and not helpful. Right. But all, all we see on the news and in the media is that this person robbed this person, this person killed this person, but we don't see, we don't hear about the poverty. We don't hear about the death of a family member or a parent or a mentor or a guardian. We don't hear about the lack of support and resources. I mean, it's very easy for affluent mm-hmm. neighborhoods and even, you know, social service organizations say, Hey, we have all our services. They're right here. They're, we welcome everybody. But then how do you access these? these individuals, these children and youth and teens, when they don't even know or have any awareness of it. And then they have these experiences that are traumatizing and we see the end result of it, not necessarily far upstream what has, what has transpired in their lives. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's why for me, hope is, hope is an important resource. You know, all of the work that I do, even most of the like songs that I write, you know what I mean? (laughs) At some point, the word hope emerges because I believe it's hope is hope is the thing that we need to have. If we're going to believe that a brighter future is possible. If we don't have that, man, it's, it's almost impossible to to do what's necessary to move forward. And when you suffer some extreme losses as a child, one of the things that happens is kids lose hope. They lose hope that, it's possible you know, they lose hope in stable relationships. They lose hope in a stable household. They lose hope in the, you know, the possibility that they'll be happy and be okay and, you know, move past certain things. A lot of people who make it out the mud, it's because someone came along or something, some influence, a song they heard, I don't know, gives them a little bit of hope. You don't need to have a lot of it, but you need to have a little bit because you don't have any of it. Well, again, those those are the, the people who end up in the worst circumstances as adults, in my opinion. You know, and I've met a lot of I met a lot of kids who, you know, by the time they hit 14, their hope is gone. And then, you know, then they end up selling drugs. So I don't know. I, I, I think this piece is big and it's it's completely understated. And, you know. In our society, we just don't focus enough on contextualizing someone's life experience and what motivates them to be who they are and to do what they do. And I think if we approach people with that desire to contextualize, we would be more compassionate. And then with that compassion, rather than rejecting people, we bring them in because we understand that whatever is happening in their lives that is negative. It's not because they're a bad person. We recognize that maybe what they need the most is some support and some love and someone to believe in them. I think when you contextualize or you approach people with the desire to contextualize, that you become more compassionate. And then with that compassion, what you end up doing now is you end up supporting them rather than rejecting them. Right? Mm-hmm. And I say this because that was definitely my story. I, I just had a lot of people believe in me. I, I grew up really poor, you know what I'm saying? And I, I grew up I grew up in areas of the city where there was a lot of crime. I had friends who were involved in crime. I had friends who invited me to become involved in crime. And it was tempting, but I had so many teachers. That's why, that's why I think teachers are really important, educators. I had so many teachers who would say, I believe in you. And sometimes I would look in the mirror and I'm like, I don't even know what they're seeing. Like, what do you mean you believe in me? What? But because they said it and because it was more than one person who said it, I was like, maybe there's something there that they see. And that's why I kept going to class. And that's why, you know, I kept showing up and, you know, doing the tests and, you know, missing a whole month of homework and then making it up 
you know, before the, the semester was finished. And, you know, in, in the back of my mind, I was like, yo, I can't let my teachers down. They believe in me. Like, this is literally what I would think. I was like, I can't let them down. They believe in me. They gave me hope. So I took that and I made better decisions, despite the fact that I had a lot of, you know, not so great decisions on the table for me that I could have made. But I said, you know, if someone believes in me and that gave me hope, I'm going to try to do the right thing. But a lot of kids don't have that. Like, I realize how lucky I am to have had that. Like, it's not very common where a kid has good and supportive teacher every single year of their, you know, kindergarten to grade 12 life. And that's literally what happened for me from kindergarten, grade one, two, three, all the way up to grade 12, had at least one teacher who I had a lot of contact and FaceTime with who believed in me and they just drilled it into me that something was possible at the end of my journey. So don't fall off the path. That's a beautiful thing, Asante. That is absolutely a beautiful thing because here you are today and all that you're doing and and all that you're helping to heal others. But my question now is, in that regard, somebody reached you. How can children and teens and youth who have experienced death-related losses, even with, you know, the traumatization of it and what have you, but who are in poverty, which is often traumatic deaths, right? Mm-hmm. How do we reach them to offer support, to offer hope? How are some of the avenues with which they can be reached? Because they're the ones that don't get it. Like you beautifully said earlier, is that they're the ones that are the most marginalized, the most, you know, on, on the fringe of society, forgotten, downtrodden, whatever you term you'd like to use, that don't reach these services. You know, I think the most important thing is showing up, showing up for them, you know, showing up to where they are, where they spend their time. You know, a lot of times we're like, hey, we have this great program. Come to us. And they don't come. So we're like, oh, well, they didn't come. So that's on them. No, like our job is to go and find them, you know, and show up to them to where they are, show up for them to where they are. Right. But also when we make contact with them to continue showing up. You know, one thing about quote unquote troubled teens is that there's usually a part of their life that has become unstable for whatever reason. So demonstrating consistency and showing up is is huge. But, you know, actually, I think the most, the number one thing is, you know, once we, you know, arrive past those hurdles is we need to make sure that with young people, we're providing them not just solutions, or we're providing them love. We can't, we can't fix young people, but we can love young people. And that's often what actually fixes them, right? The other stuff, you know, I'll come to this resume program, you know, join this leadership thing, play this sport. Yeah, those things help. You know what I mean? And they contribute, definitely. But the most important thing is that we love them. You know what I'm saying? Like a lot of yeah. a lot of young people don't feel that consistently. No, no doubt. And and that can that lack of love, connection, you know, as as we spoke earlier, can really be an isolating factor and, and lead to a loss of hope. You mentioned about the 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 supports you provided, Asante, your group you set up. Why didn't they come? Why would they come? And and that's actually as I as I design programs and throw events and stuff like that now as either the designer or the advisor, the question I often ask the teams that I work with are what is in it for them? Why, why would they show up? Like, why are they going to, why are they showing up? You know what I mean? Because we often think about the program through our lens, you know, what do they need? And oftentimes those are what we think they need our assumptions, but even when they're not, you know, actually, you know, what I'll say is when we, when we think we know what they need and make assumptions, that's when they don't show up. When we understand what they need through their eyes and their experiences, that's when they do show up. So how do we get there, Santi? How do we find out? How do we know what their needs are? Because I I recognize a lot of people don't come to our supports because it's not, it's what we think they might need, not what they think, not, not, not what they actually need, you know? So how do we, how do we learn that? You know, I think the first thing is we got to find where they are, you know, but when we make contact with them, I think a lot of it is kind of actually just asking them like, Hey, here we have this program slash offering slash what have you. And we want to, you know, our do something, you know, we want to support, 
However, what do you need? You know, where, where I work at Stella's Place, what we do with all of our programs is we co-design them with the audience and the potential participants that, the, that we're actually going to serve. So that like what they need is built into the thinking and the consideration of the program. By and large, most of our programs are successful. And when they're not successful, it's usually not because of not, you know, meeting the needs of the young people. Sometimes it's logistical or something to do with our business. You know what I'm saying? But it's really important that we listen, that we ask questions, that we're curious and that we listen. That's how we, you know, that's how we know what anybody needs, whether it's a program that we're running and we're trying to attract young people to it or in in our relationships with our children or in our marriages or in our friendships. You know, it's all about just asking questions and listening. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at that. I'm not going to sit here and be like, yo, I'm a guru. You know what I mean? (laughs) But, But I noticed that when I do that well, the results tend to be good. When I don't do it well and I make assumptions, that's when things tend to not go so well. Absolutely. A lot of assumptions can be made about these children, youth and, and teens and about grieving. I mean, there's a lot of assumptions just on loss and what, what trauma is. Can you tell us a little bit more about the community healing project at, uh, at in the city of Toronto and even Stella's place, Asante, where you work? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, the community healing project is is a city-led project. It's, you know, it's got national funding from the government of Canada and, you know, it operates through a variety of different partner organizations, Stella's Place being one of them. So I'm the, I'm the training lead for the Community Healing Project. What we do is we reach out to young people from communities where there is a higher incidence of violence, and we provide, you know, in cohorts of 25 or so, give or take a few, 25 young people, we provide, you know, uh, a 12-session training for them that addresses their experiences of trauma, but also really works on self-awareness, coping skills, self-care, nutrition, how to communicate, you know, by talking and receiving communications, uh, having, you know, being mindful about what we communicate and how we communicate it, uh, you know, thinking about and processing our own trauma and grief, supporting others who are on that same journey, you know, et cetera, like a lot of stuff, you know what I mean? And then after the, after those 12 sessions, we support those young people to go out in pairs or trios to run 12 week workshops in their own communities with young people. Yeah. That's, that's essentially the program model. It's really impactful. We change lives every single time. And I'm so, so proud of the work that we do. And also really grateful for all of these young people who come through the program because I know it's cliche to say this, but I learned so much more from them than they could ever hope to imagine from me. People are like, Asante, you're so wise. You know so much about people. And it's because I just listen to stories of all these young people who come through all these programs. When I listen and they tell me their stories and how things impact them, it helps me to be better at understanding human behavior. That just, you know, helps on so many levels in so many domains. But, you know, what's really interesting is that I've kind of become, a second ago I said I'm not a guru, but I've kind of become a little (laughs) bit of an expert with communication and human behavior. However, when I was growing up, I was so isolated socially, familiarly. Is that a word, familiarly? I don't know. (laughs) We'll make it a word today. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But I was so isolated that, I had very poor communication skills and very poor understanding of human behavior. But because I've learned so much from all these young people, I've become an expert at it. So, I mean, you know, they think I'm helping them, but really they're helping me too. And, um, but the the transformation we see is huge. You know, I'm all, my favorite people to work with are the young people that are coming out of incarceration. My absolute favorite people to work with. There's where, in many cases, that's where the greatest magnitude of transformation can be achieved. The thing about being incarcerated that I think a lot of people don't get is, one, a lot of people who do things that land them in jail are very remorseful about what they did. 
And more than that, very feel very ashamed of what they did. And they hate that they hurt somebody or did something bad. So, But then when they come out, it's like they understand that they've been branded and stigmatized as criminals. And once we do that in society, what we essentially do is we say, you're not as good as the rest of us anymore. How many of us have done things that could be deemed criminal and did not get caught? Should we receive that same stigma? True. Right? But here, so we stigmatize these, these individuals and these young people. So they come out, they understand that the stigma exists for them. They understand that tangibly it means that most jobs are unavailable to them. Going back to hope, a lot of them don't have it. So they end up back, you know, where they started. You know, we create these cycles with our systems and the way our systems teach us to think about people who have been incarcerated. So the biggest joy for me in my job often is working with incarcerated people or people who have been incarcerated and helping to provide them some hope that they can actually make it in the world doing things 100% legal. Very powerful, Asante. Very powerful. And they they must carry their own experiences of loss and grief of their futures, their lives, their relationships, you know, and just to, res, you know, to circle back to even what you said about the healing project, it sounds so holistic. Oftentimes mm-hmm. in, in supportive measures, especially for children, youth and teen, the it's not as holistic. You were speaking about everything, even down to nutrition. I mean, when you're looking at all aspects of supporting these these individuals, you're looking at a whole spectrum of support. So I'm not surprised you're proud, very proud to be to be providing mm-hmm. that. Can I ask you when you, um, I mean, I have so much to ask you, but you know, <laughs> Thank the, you. the incarceration, every, I mean, there's so much flowing through my mind, but I have an agenda, unfortunately, that I want to, that I just want to ask you about the teens and youth specifically, or even the children that you've worked with who have experienced violence, but grief and death as a result of violence. Mm-hmm. How have they, how do they process? How do they receive support? How do they be with the grief and loss and trauma they've experienced as a result of violence? You know, I think, which is true for a lot of people, different people process things differently. But, you know, if if we were to think in broad strokes, you know, what's really interesting is young people from communities where there's a lot of violence is it may appear like they're processing things better than you know, those of us who are not from communities that experience a lot of violence. But what's actually happening is that they become desensitized to loss, especially loss of life. Yeah. So it's not that they're processing, it's that they're they're blunting. They're they're pushing things aside. They're like, well, this is just how it is. This is normal. You so know what happens to that blunting? What happened? where does it go? What does it somaticize? What happens to it? Does it turn into Some, aggression yeah. and violence and anger? What happens to it? I think it depends on the person. Sometimes people somaticize it. Sometimes it becomes depression and anxiety. Sometimes it becomes someone becoming involved in carrying out violence. Sometimes it becomes becoming promiscuous. You know, sometimes it's, you know, it it always comes out in, in somehow, you know, and a lot of folks end up engaging in self-soothing behaviors. And then we look at what for them are self-soothing behaviors we look at those behaviors as problematic, addiction, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah. So, you know, when we don't address trauma, it's going to come out. Some, sometimes, you know, some of these folks end up going to school and getting their degrees and master's degrees, but they don't process the trauma. Mm-hmm. So it shows up in their relationships, you know, where they have difficulty keeping relationships going with anybody. Sometimes it's all the other stuff I mentioned, you know, but, you know, by and large, you know, I see a desensitization and this kind of compartmentalization of trauma rather than actually processing the trauma. You know what I'm saying? And I've been there before myself, you know, I'm sure that the death of every single relationship, romantic relationship I've ever had in my life was a result in part of my own trauma that I had not processed. So it was showing up in the relationship in some way. So it's hard to say what one way trauma shows up in people when they experience loss, especially, you know, loss 
due to violence. But what I will say is that it always does show up. It always does show up. Eh? It always does show up until we process. And we can compartmentalize and we can somatic, it can be somaticized and we can self-regulate, but eventually in some form it will surface, right? And and it could be when we're well-adjusted or it could some, be something I would suspect that keeps us in marginalization and poverty and loss of hope. Is that correct? That's exactly it, which is sad when you think about it. Yeah, because it repeats a cycle, right? It's exactly, exactly sad, right, Asante? If we pull this out and look at it a little bit from a bird's eye view, on a societal level, on an information level, what can be done if, I mean, there's an individual like yourself that's already doing it, but maybe you could just speak to what you're doing in terms of bringing this awareness to a a greater public eye, right? And, and especially when it comes to trauma and grief and loss and, and death um, in that regard. I think there are people like me who are privileged enough to have a platform to talk about these things. And, you know, for me, I often approach my work as an obligation because you know when i was growing up getting involved in this industry was certainly not at the top of my list of this is what i want to do when i grow up uh you know i wanted you know for me my big things were like tech sports and anything creative right i found myself here it almost feels like i was called or i was chosen to do the work that i do now and well when I discovered that I could have an impact doing it, and then I reflected on the community I came from and all the ways in which they needed support, I said, I have to do this. I'm like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those people who's like, I don't know if it's survivor's guilt, but there's something that pulls me back to the community I grew up in, you know, or communities like it. And because I know that I received an unfair amount of luck and an unfair amount of serendipitous attention from those who provided opportunities for me. I know that's why I made it out. I know it's, it's not because I am so special that, you know, I, I pulled up my bootstraps and, you know, I went out there and I did it, you know? So just knowing that I'm knowing that it required all these stars to align. What I'm trying to do is create a situation where the stars don't need to align for everybody in order for them to make it. Right. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and but, you know, but really speaking to your question, we all have the power of our own voices. And a lot of us wait for leaders to do the talking. But we're all leaders somewhere. You know, we're a leader in our friendship group. We're a leader in our family. We're a leader in our religious institution. You know, we're, you know, we're a leader, you know, in with our best friend, like with our ch- something, we're all a leader somewhere. So we all have a voice that can make a difference because me, I can go on TV or go on a podcast or a radio show and say my thing. And, you know, a few thousand people will hear it. That's pretty good. That, you know, that, that's all right. But if you have galvanized the population to start thinking and talking about things in a particular way, it's going to reach way more than a few thousand people. So we all have to be a part of the solution. Otherwise, it, it, in my opinion, it, it simply cannot work. So if we all have to be, I mean, wonderfully said, Asante, if we all have to be, I mean, you sound like a guru, so I'm not surprised. Even. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, brother. But if we all have to be part of that solution and have that voice, then that, that I, I would say necessitates all of us talking about trauma and grief and loss as it pertains to children, you know, youth and, and teens. And Asante, the, what you were describing in terms of a calling or your obligation, and I really, I really resonated with that term obligation in terms of your life story and, and uh, the enormous amount of quote unquote luck that, that you had. But that's the peer support model, is it not? Is it the fact of life experience, mm-hmm. you know, being applied? Can you speak to a little bit more to the efficacy of the peer support model with the work you do? Yeah, you know, here's my thing. Like, again, I'm, I'm a big believer in human behavior. Like, I, I, always, I, I always feel like, you know, the, the, the part of the story that we often miss is just like how we are as humans. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, you know, so when, when I interpret things through the lens of human behavior, you know, it's, it's kind of like, how does someone respond to this? How will someone react to that? This sort of thing, right? Um, but really at the root of it is 
you know, the root of human behavior and community building are stories. Like all of us are impacted by stories. All of us tell stories. So, and the things that we often trust the most are not facts and science, but stories, you know, um, you know, for better or for worse, considering COVID. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) but in saying that it's, you know, like for instance, the first thing that I do in every training session at the community healing project, you know, on the first half of the first session is I state my trauma to the entire room. And I say, the reason I'm doing this work is because I experienced these traumas and I want to interrupt them. And I want to be the support for a 16 year old me that I didn't receive. Right. So I I tell the story. And then what that does is everyone in the room is like, Oh wow. I it's okay to share my story now. And then we start sharing stories with each other. And then within each story is wisdom, experience, growth. And then when I hear the stories of, you know, I'm not going to resonate with every story, but if I'm in a room with 25 other young people who come from similar circumstances that I do, and five or 10 of those stories really resonate with me, and, and some, you know, five, maybe five of those 10 resonate with me because of what they went through, and then the other five of those 10 resonate with me because of what they overcame, and they provide, uh, you know, a uh, lens through which I can see me overcoming my experience, then all of those stories become so much more valuable. And those things become the, 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 the motivating forces in my life. Right. So for me, that's what peer support is all about is just making space for people to be honest and authentic and vulnerable with each other in a way that allows everybody to learn and everyone to grow and to support each other in that process along the way. Brilliant, Asante, brilliant. Uh, I'm a very strong advocate of, of peer support models and I can very much appreciate what you're, what you're speaking to, especially with the life experience and lived life that you've had, right, in that regard. Just to round this out, and I'm so appreciative of your time, if you just to yeah. round this out, for, for children and youth and teens that have come to your groups or you've engaged with that have experienced grief, do you support it and work with it in terms of the isolation of the grief itself and the experiences of grieving, or do you find it often convoluted and complicated with poverty, marginalization, discrimination, racism, and all that? You know, I think for us, what we try to do is we try to create a space where we're always talking about it, you know? And then, well, I don't know if we try to do that. I try to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I try to create a space where everything is on the table and it's okay, you know? Oftentimes people will will share something and they start crying and they say, sorry. I'm like, what are you saying sorry for? This is your experience. This is your story. This is your emotion. This is your pain. The way that you're expressing it right now is perfectly healthy. And the fact that we've been trained out of feeling like expressing deep emotion is healthy is I think one of the problems that we have in our society. You know, so for me, you know, it's, you know, whenever I do a workshop or design a program or anything like that, my approach is never let's leave people with these five tips and, you know, they can go live their life. Or when I say tips, I mean, it's, I don't want people to be like, well, if I do a bunch of yoga, I'm going to be good. You know, what I want people to do is to really look inside of themselves to think about who they are how they arrived there and to understand that they have the power in this moment to start creating their own circumstances for the future. Because when we experience loss, a lot, especially the losses that hurt us the most and stay with us, a lot of times they've been unpredictable and they've just kind of appeared in our lives and they seem like it's not fair. And, you know, we then, you know, with, with respect to like locus of control, we start to feel like the external world is something that we have no control over. Things just happen to us. And when we get into that mindset of things happening to us, we don't see the ways in which we can manipulate our own circumstance, circumstances, starting with how we can manipulate the way we think about 
interpret, perceive, and receive the world. That's where it starts. And then when we learn to manipulate those things in our favor, in our benefit, it starts to have this residual impact in our environments around us. And then when that happens, we're able to start moving forward toward a future that is more aligned with what we would hope for or what we would want. You know, so for me, it's like my work is all about helping people become more self-aware and understand what power they have to create the circumstances internally first that they would like. You know, going back to what I was saying before about me growing up as a poor communicator and not really understanding people very well, you know, there was a point in my life where I just said, well, I'm not going to be this person anymore, you know? And I just made a decision to be a different person. I'm like, I'm not going to be a shy person anymore. I'm not going to be timid. I'm not going to be someone who doesn't speak their mind. I'm just, I'm just not going to be this person anymore. And people often ask me, well, what do you got to do to make those changes? And for me, I think it's really simple. It's just do the things that the person you want to be does, you know? So if, if for me, using the communication example, if, if the person, if I wanted to be a person who wasn't shy and a person who wasn't timid, well, that requires me that when I walk into a new space to talk to people and to do it with confidence, you know what I mean? And yes. it doesn't come naturally. I had to practice at it for years, but, you know, I, I engaged in it and I said, you know, I'm going to, you know, do this thing to become who I want to become. And I think the same is true of anything, including how we reconstruct our lives after experiencing grief and loss. So yeah, grief and loss, it happens, it hurts, it impacts us, it changes our lives, it changes how we perceive things. But when we take a step back and learn that we can influence how we perceive the world, which then influences our experiences of it emotionally, psychologically, etc., then we start to feel like we have power. And then when we have power, we have hope. And then we can go out there and decide how we want to live now, today, even though the hurtful thing happened. It's never going away. But what can we do to still live, you know? And so for me, that, that's my whole thing. That's, that's how I'm trying to approach it. Great wisdom, uh, Asante. Great wisdom. Wisdom and learnings and teachings that should be part of any grief support program. So I so appreciate that. In terms of, you spoke about platforms. You have Asante Talks on Twitter and Instagram. You also have two TEDx's. Uh, I don't know if that's a word, but there you go. Any <laughs> other platforms with, within <laughs> within people, within which people can uh, learn more about what you're, you know, what you're speaking to and, and to learn more from, from you? Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I don't do as much public stuff since I had the baby, <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot of that was a conscious decision, you know, being in public for two years straight was, it was hard. Um, and it's a little overwhelming to your psyche or at least mine anyways. Uh, so, um, but with that being said, uh, I co-host a podcast called life outside the box. I co-host it with a young person. She's amazing. Uh, her name's Abby and she's just like, I mean, realistically, she carries it. I'm just kind of there. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but there's that. Um, you, you already spoke about Cypher. Uh, so Cypher, Stories from Caregivers, uh, is something that, you know, we just released uh, four new episodes. I wasn't four. I believe it was four new episodes um, recently, uh, maybe about a month ago. Uh, you could find that at stories for stories storiesforcaregivers.com or dot man i should know this man they just have to look up stories for caregivers that's exactly, it exactly <laughs> exactly right I, I i should know this but i just have so many things about, like i'm so tired too like it's just all to, you know what happened today i was in a meeting looking at zoom windows and we're doing like a check-in to like say who's the next person to check in and i was looking at two people and i was deciding in my head which one i would choose and then i ended up actually blending their names together <laughs> and saying both of their names at the same time like that's awesome that's the level of tired i'm at but but, but. and a young and, a, and and a father of a young child you know so right you know what i'm saying so but yeah. so anyways there's cypher africanthology which you also mentioned earlier this is 
you know, well, it's an anthology of African Canadian writers and thinkers and professors and a whole bunch of people, you know, just creative and smart people uh, telling stories about their experiences as Black Canadians. Uh, I recommend picking it up. Yeah, it's available on Amazon uh, or your nearest chapters, Indigo. It's really, really good stuff. Uh, I got a poem in there. I got a poem and also an essay uh, centered around my experiences. Essentially, it's about code switching. And when I learned I needed to code switch in order for me to be safe, and I needed to be safe in order for me to provide the opportunity to escape poverty and then losing yourself in the code switching and kind of not knowing who you are anymore and recovering from that. So um, I think it's a really interesting article. Uh, <laughs> so you could go out and, you know, pick that one up. Um, yeah. You know, I think those are the main things right now. Again, I'm kind of hanging back uh, a little bit, but you know, if anyone does want to reach out to me, please do. I'm very easy to find. I'm very Googleable. <laughs> you are. Yeah, <laughs> you are. I have to tell you, Asati, you know, when we did that episode on for stairs for caregivers, that I've shown that, I mean, I'm sure it gets a lot of attention from it, but I've shown that in every presentation I give. And I'm so I was I'm so enthralled by it. I'm so privileged by it. And it was so incredible how you folks weaved the story of a caregiver, death and dying and loss and trauma and mixed it up with music and, you know, and, uh, you know, Junior T and Darrell DeYoung and, and Biff Naked. Mm -hmm. And it's just really something else and how you facilitated the conversation. So quite powerful. I really appreciate your time today, Asante. Oh, I, I um, appreciate it so much, man. Thank you. This is the best part of my day today. So I appreciate oh. it. <laughs> oh, that's, that's an honor, man. That's an honor. It's definitely the best part of my week. Let's just say that. Uh, folks, if started, you're... Man. You can't say that. I yet. know. <laughs> <laughs> I was saying my week started last week. My, you know, I worked right through the weekend. Welcome to social services, you know? Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, absolutely, brother. Absolutely. Thank you for your time today, folks. Once again, you want to learn more about Asante and his work, you know, there's Asante Talks uh, at Asante Talks. And uh, if you want to learn more about our programming at Lighthouse, please visit us. We have a new website and a new domain called www.lighthousegriefsupport.org. Thank you very much for your time, everyone. And I hope you stay safe. We are not done from this pandemic just yet. So take mm -hmm. care of yourselves. And we'll see you on the flip side. All the best. <laughs>